Welcome back to Cunningham's Law Review, where our goal is to listen to the top artists and songs of the last 100 years, starting in 1920 and working our way forward. Four days a week, we review what we hear and share the history of popular music with you as we do. I'm Richie, and you're listening to Side A of episode 1921-1, which I'm excited to say is the first of our episodes for the year 1921. Today's music comes courtesy of Marion Harris, who we've talked about in 1920-1, and Eileen Stanley, who is a newcomer to Cunningham's Law Review. Finally, we'll be listening to a song from duo Van and Shank that's 100 years old but still rings true as a reminder that money can't buy happiness. Let's take a look at some of the new artists that we'll be hearing today for our first episode from 1921. Born in Chicago to English immigrants in 1893, Eileen Stanley's life was rough before she was even born. While her mother was pregnant, both Stanley's sister and father passed away suddenly from typhoid fever, leaving her mother to raise Eileen and her two brothers by herself, having only even been in the country for six years at that point. Eileen's real name was Maud Elsie Eileen Muggeridge, which she wisely changed to Eileen Stanley, taking the name from an act that she performed with her brother, Stanley and Eileen. By the 1920s, Stanley was performing on New York's vaudeville stages as well as in the cabaret scene. Today we'll be listening to one of her biggest hits, My Mammy. Though we haven't yet listened to anyone who's still living, Stanley is probably the closest, having lived to almost 90 years old and passing away in only 1982. That means she would have gotten to see Empire Strikes Back, but not Return of the Jedi, which is kind of a downer for her, but at least she did get to find out that Darth Vader is Luke's father. Spoiler alert. Our next group, Van and Shank, were a duo comprised of Gus Van and Joe Shank, born in 1886 and 1891, respectively. They were huge on the vaudeville circuit and appeared in Ziegfeld's Follies in New York from 1918 all the way until this year of 1921. Their voices, with Van's baritone serving as the lower counter to Shank's tenor, were favorites of audiences who would follow them with interest as they moved from vaudeville into the emerging radio and film industry, until Shank's untimely death in 1930. While Shank's early death is a solemn note, it's important to mention something else upsetting. In one of our recent episodes, I thought we had reached peak bad nickname, with Ben Selvin's appellation, the Dean of Recorded Music. Unfortunately, I was wrong. We have hit a new bottom with musical duo Van and Shank's nickname, the pennant-winning battery of Songland. Let's take just a second to shake our heads at that. Not only is this a terrible nickname since it references both firing at the audiences as well as using the very lame Songland, but it calls Van and Shank a pennant-winning duo. And when you win the pennant, it doesn't mean you're the best. It means that you won your league. So they're saying that Van and Shank would be good enough to go to the championship round of singing, but not claiming they could win. That is a really strange billing when you're trying to use it to sell tickets. And speaking of a third depressing thing, Marion Harris. Since Marion Harris is someone who we've already introduced in episode 1920-1, we don't really need to give her entire history here. However, here are three things to know about Marion Harris from our last review, and one thing specific to 1921. Marion Harris was one of the best-selling artists of the 1920s, and she has been called the Queen of the Blues, a title that we feel is undeserved when compared to even other blues artists of the same time period. 
In our first reviews of Harris, she earned a disappointing average of 12 points out of 25 and currently has the lowest scoring song of any we reviewed with a 7. And that's not 7 over 0. The minimum score you can get at Cunningham's Law Review is a 5. So scoring a 7 is a monumental undertaking that really involves bad decisions from start to finish. Harris's work as a white jazz singer was well-liked at the time, but hasn't aged well at all due to its affected accents that are painfully obvious, insulting subject matter, and generally vapid topics. The specific thing that may play into at least one of these songs today by Harris is that she was briefly married this year, and I'm looking forward to hearing a bit of authenticity from her in I'm Nobody's Baby, where she may be able to call on some of her actual life experience to make the song deeper than her 1920 performances. So let's stop talking about the music and let's start listening. Normally, this is the part of the podcast where I tell you that if you're not listening on Spotify at this point, you really should be. But Spotify has changed how podcasts like Cunningham's Law Review operate, and so I no longer need to publish separate playlists to play music in our episodes. Through the wonders of modern technology, from now on, you just need to start the podcast episode and you'll hear everything in a row without pressing another button. Today's episode is posted to Spotify under the title Cunningham's Law Review 1921-1, and it's all one piece. You can find a link to this episode on the Cunningham's Law Review subreddit at reddit.com slash r slash Cunningham's Law Review. We want to know what you think about our reviews and the music we're hearing, so make sure to join us on the subreddit or leave us an anchor voicemail. That's all for Side A of episode 1921-1. We'll see you for the reviews after the songs on Side B. Welcome back to Cunningham's Law Review, episode 1921-1. You're now listening to the B-side of the podcast, where we review each of the songs in today's music and talk more about the impact that these songs had. If you'd like to join the conversation, the Cunningham's Law subreddit will have a dedicated post for this episode at reddit.com slash r slash Cunningham's Law Review. We'd also love to hear from you through an anchor voicemail. I'm Richie, your host, and I hope you enjoyed the music or at least heard something new. Today's musicians Eileen Stanley, Marion Harris, and duo Van and Shank all made their mark on the vaudeville stage, and some better than others. We start our reviews today talking about Eileen Stanley with My Man. What a disappointing start for Eileen Stanley, a singer who I was hoping would be a bright spot among Harris's usually middling offerings. But she starts off with an accent that makes you wonder what she, as the child of English-speaking immigrants from England who grew up in Chicago, was thinking. It would have been different if the accent was good, but Stanley's authenticity is called immediately into question by the weak attempt at an accent that I'm not even able to place, and she earns a two. The musical innovation and complexity are as lacking as the authenticity, and while there are some clever rhymes, the song doesn't gain or keep steam in an effort to sing about a great guy that Stanley is planning hold on to. The musical innovation and complexity are as lacking as the authenticity, and while there are some clever rhymes, the song doesn't gain or keep steam in its effort to sing about a great guy that Stanley is planning to hold on to. For a very weak start to 1921, Eileen Stanley's My Man receives a 10 out of 25 points. In case you were thinking, oh, I've never listened to Eileen Stanley, maybe that's just how she sings and Richie's being too hard on her. The accent is completely gone for My Mammy and the remaining songs, so it was really just put on for My Man. 
In My Mammy, the perspective is interestingly reversed from the song title and sung from the standpoint of a mother warning her daughter that the daughter will miss her when she leaves home and that the daughter will call out for My Mammy when she's away. While this is likely an authentic statement for most people who are leaving home and whose parents try to tell them how much they'll miss them and in turn be missed, there's not any complexity to that message outside of conveying it directly, which stops the song from meaningfully authentic or artistic merit, and the song earns twos for those categories. As with most of Stanley's musical accompaniment in her 1921 recordings, the band is serviceable, but only because they're hardly noticeable, and if not for Stanley's much better vocals when compared to the previous song, they would earn a two, but instead climb up to a three with Stanley's performance considered. Unfortunately, the only place the song innovates is in not being catchy and earns twos for both of those categories as well, narrowly beating My Man with 11 points. While Al Jolson would become the most well-known singer of this song, later covering it in his biopic The Jazz Singer, as well as other places, the first recording was by William Frawley, a name that you probably don't recognize. You will, however, recognize him as Fred, neighbor of Lucy and Ricky Ricardo, and husband of Ethel Mertz from I Love Lucy. Moving on to I'm Nobody's Baby, when a song starts out with a little ebony love scene from the Southlands, I immediately know that it's going to be tasteful and well done. Of course not. It's fake country accents and over-the-top stereotypical characters of minstrel show characters, complete with uneducated accents and physical abuse in relationships. So authenticity is off the bat a one, because if Eileen Stanley ever met a black person, she sure as hell didn't pay attention. Something that caught my ear is that this is the first time I've heard someone refer to, quote, wanting a little lovin', which for the times may have been quite risque, and I wonder if the black character is being used as a device that allows Stanley to be more forward than would normally be allowed if she were to have been singing in her own narrative voice. If you know anything about that kind of literary device use, I'd love to hear about it. The song's got one highlight that keeps it out of the single digits, though just barely. In Innovation, where the song earns a three for the portrayal of the female character as an independent woman who was not interested in being part of an abusive relationship. I was honestly surprised to hear a positive message at all from this, but I can't deny that as an ending, it's a lot better than I was expecting, even if it's a poorly executed statement overall, earning a two. For mastery, the band and Stanley do an okay job, but the piece overall betrays a lack of mastery, since it was recorded as a performance piece in a medium that doesn't suit performance pieces, with no adjustments for that fact, so earns a two. Similarly, Catchiness suffers and earns a two, as this was likely meant for the vaudeville stage, but instead was recorded directly to the record without adjustment to the musical accompaniment, arrangement, or the consideration of the fact that the music would drop out during the spoken word portions and be kind of boring. In Stanley's highest scoring song of the year, All By Myself, which earns a 14, she offers a personal and interesting take on wanting a man, where she admits directly that she's tired of being lonely and that she wants a man in her life. Authenticity-wise, it's credible enough to not jar the listener, but being lonely is common and there's no specific insight given here. While the song gets over the top and expecting us to believe that she's up all night crying, but not really conveying any supporting emotion for that message, it's generally average, scoring threes in all categories, except for mastery where it gets a two for the lack of any challenging material. It should be noted that in this song we see the return of the 1920s most erotic piece of home furnishing, the Morris Chair. We talked about the Morris Chair's role in our 1920 year episodes, explaining that since it can recline, it became the height of romantic fashion, and here the trend continues. To portray how lonely she is, Stanley talks about the chair being a place where she just plays solitaire and sits alone. 
It's an interesting use of negative space to show who isn't there, but only because we know that that chair is being used to portray a missed opportunity. Now moving on to Marion Harris, who similarly has no one to join her in a Morris chair. We talk about I Ain't Got Nobody. In an instant, the melody that opens the song reaches out to listeners through the years, thanks mostly to the work of artists like Louis Armstrong and David Lee Roth in covering it, though in the latter case based on Louis Prima's medley which included just a gigolo. We talked a lot about this song in our cover to cover one episode, and Harris made it famous when she recorded it at Victor in 1916. However, this version became popular later when she re-recorded the song for her new label, Columbia which you may remember from 1920-1, is the label that Harris left Victor for when Victor wouldn't let her sing the St. Louis Blues. This version features Harris's reasonably good voice, and though the song is much better when it's sped up as in later recorded versions, you can see why this blues version became popular in the first place. Music is simple and supports the song until the interlude, which adds a bit more strut to it, but not much. The artistic statement isn't anything special, but it's interesting to hear the origins of a very old song that yet we still all know in the back of our heads somewhere. The song receives threes in all categories for a total score of 15. It's interesting to hear the phrase sweet daddy in 1920 in reference to a potential man, but I guess by the 40s daddy-o was in use within beat circles, so it had to have started before then. Look for the silver lining has a simple message to look on the bright side and to see the clouds for their silver linings of beauty. The musical accompaniment in this song stands aside so that the lyrics can take center stage. And that's probably the right decision because the lyrics are a bit more dense, but that does take away from the complexity. For its good message and performance, the song matches I Ain't Got Nobody with threes in all categories for a 15 point total score. I'll be honest. I have been waiting to see why Marion Harris had any sort of reputation like she did, and I think this song, I'm a Jazz Vampire, starts to reveal her ability to stand on her own and become a celebrity that outmatches her overall performances. Before we review this song, it's helpful to define what kind of vampire we're talking about, because it was just Halloween and we're not talking about a blood-sucking monster. It's easier to understand if you abandon the word vampire mentally and replace it with vamp which is what vampire was shortened to in this context since. A vamp is a woman who charms her way into men's graces to take advantage of their foolishness. In the words of Florence Ziegfeld of Ziegfeld's Follies fame, a vampire is a good woman with a bad reputation. There were literally articles in the 20s warning the general populace to be on the lookout for such women, and it seems to have been a vampire pandemic. While we're on the subject, I haven't been able to confirm that Marianne Harris is not a blood-sucking monster, so the rumors there are unconfirmed, but also undenied. What Harris does confirm in this song is that she can be a badass. This song is a love letter from Harris to Jazz, and starts by painting the mating call of the saxophone to the clarinet as the genesis of jazz. In doing so, Harris herself is born as the jazz vampire and waste no time immediately going over the top to enumerate all of the evil powers that Jazz, as a negative social influence and general hussy factory, has imbued her with. It's fun to hear Harris go so over the top to make fun of people that think Jazz has a power over anyone. She takes them at their word and ups the ante to show that not only can Jazz help her to take your man if she wants to, but she can just shake her shoulders and sink a ship, make elevators fall with her mere presence, and cause you to spill water on yourself just by typing in a syncopated rhythm in the office. While this can all seem ridiculous now, there are still people who blame music for the ills of society. 
In the 70s, metal was blamed for devil worship, and so was Dungeons and Dragons, and there's a really funny Tom Hanks movie called Mazes and Monsters that nobody's seen, where he gets put in a mental institution because he loses his mind to Dungeons and Dragons. But even in the 90s, rap music was blamed for rising crime rates, and honestly, I'm really excited to see what K-pop gets blamed for because it has to be doing something besides making teenagers look stupid on TikTok. Harris probably lived this song, without the bewitched powers, of course, and she receives a 4 for authenticity and a 5 for artistic statement. While this song is innovative in its subject matter as satire and receives a 4, in the actual music of the song, there's a lack of impressive jazz and catchiness, and in those categories, the song receives a pair of 3s, making it Harris's best performing song so far with a total score of 19. In another surprisingly good song, Harris attempts the metamorphosis that many young pop stars find themselves facing, the transition from young lady who sings to woman with needs. In I'm Nobody's Baby, this transition ironically would have been about the same time as her marriage, but Harris does sing the material authentically enough and earns a four. We don't falter for having a personal life, but it would have been an interesting time for her to say something along the lines of, rings aren't handcuffs and you don't own me, instead of saying, I'm ready to be locked down. But the times were different, and it's possible that trying to be a vamp wouldn't have worked for her publicly if she was being serious. The song is average in innovation and catchiness, receiving threes there, but in terms of mastery, Harris's strong vocal performance is met by some interesting piano solos in the latter half of the song, and earns a four to match its artistic statement for a total score of 18. In Beale Street Blues, an average song from Harris, the singer explains why she's got the blues. Beale Street has gone dry. Due to Prohibition, which is America's greatest mortal sin, which would continue for another agonizing 12 years, Beale Street is a broken-down shell of its former self, and for calling attention to that effectively, Harris receives a 4 in artistic statement, with 3s in the other 4 categories for a total score of 16. She'll be happy to know that in her rumored vampiric immortality, the taps are back open on Beale Street. And again, I'm not saying that Marion Harris is an actual vampire. I'm just saying that I can't confirm that she's not. Finally, we have Van and Shank's Ain't We Got Fun. This is a really fun song that I've probably heard a hundred times but never knew where it came from. Earning a four in catching this, the song grabs you quickly, and it's telling you that you don't need money since the things that make you happy come free anyway. Even a hundred years ago, times were rough for those without, and this song claims that it's due to those with, noting that the rich get richer and the poor get children and layoffs. And for that message, the song receives a four in artistic statement as well. The music is simple and it's as likely as not that it's authentic, so the song receives threes in the remaining categories for a total score of 17. That is all for today's episode and I think there were three surprises from the listening. Eileen Stanley was a bit of a letdown receiving an average of 11.25 for her 1921 work. But Marion Harris made major strides and improved from her 1920 score of 12, almost 5 points, to an average score of 16.6 for 1921. With Van and Shank surprising us with what would be a classic bound for the public domain of knowledge, our first episode of 1921 has put us on a good start for the remainder of the year. We want to know what you think, whether or not you agree with us, because Cunningham's Law states that the best way to learn something on the internet isn't to ask a question, but to post the wrong answer somewhere. So make sure to find the subreddit's dedicated post for this episode at reddit.com slash r slash Cunningham's Law Review, or reach out to us through an Anchor voicemail. 
If you leave us an anchor voicemail that we end up using on the show, we'll review an album of your choice in a special episode, even if it's your own bands. If you like what we're doing here, leave us a review on your favorite podcasting service and follow the podcast and playlist. And if you don't like it, definitely don't mention that to anybody. Until next time, I've been your host, Richie, and you've been listening to Cunningham's Law Review. Our theme music is a difficult subject by The Insider, and nobody else works here. 